Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Political Beats, presentation of National Review. Subscribe to our feed. New episodes on Mondays. Get them through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Plus, right there at nationalreview.com. Click on Podcast. You'll find the new episodes and all of our old episodes. We have 12 in the can. This is uh, lucky number 13 today that you'll be listening to. Uh, thank you for joining us here at Political Beats. We, of course, talk with people in politics, around politics, covering politics, discussing politics about nothing political whatsoever, but only about their favorite music and their favorite bands and why perhaps you should love them, too. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My co-host, as always, standing by, Jeff Blair. Jeff. Oh, hi there, Scott. How are you? I... I wish I could say I was feeling better, but I've been afflicted by a, well, a season of melancholy. Is that so wrong? Is it wrong not to always be glad? Well, I'd, I'd like to sing a song that I wrote for you about a, a, a very difficult period in my life, a breakfast, actually. It's called Hairdresser <laughs> in a Coma. I cried last night. I died a million deaths thinking of your sweet face and the way you were. I cried and lied. We sighed and died. And then I cried some more. I must have wept for hours because I know that you once loved me, but not very often. <laughs> <laughs> uh oh <clears throat> for more of jeff's musical stylings at esoteric cd on twitter and we welcome in our guest for this uh show which you might have been tipped off by jeff's uh little musical number uh not the guest but the the artist i should say our guest today is a correspondent for vice news tonight on hbo he's a member of the fifth column podcast i believe the third member of the fifth column podcast to join this whole podcast here find him on twitter at mc moynihan he is michael moynihan michael how are you i'm doing well i was doing fine and then i heard jeff's uh, intro and i was just <laughs> and i don't know if i want to stick around very long no I, i'm doing fantastic and, and you know what it's it's funny because when jeff asked me to do this and he asked me to pick a band um and it was a tough one actually because there's a, a a lot to choose from so i tried to pick the most divisive band i could for this audience which i presume you know there's no there's no in between in between with morrissey and the smiths yeah. people really really loathe morrissey um i think most people don't really understand it and i think jeff's intro is actually kind of funny because i never found the smiths or morrissey and i think people really misunderstand them as a band um, to be miserableists, I didn't never found Morrissey was missed to be, you know, something that you should uh, get incredibly depressed about. And these are for those goth girls that were smoking clove cigarettes over the hill. And that was what it was in my high school. But I, I, I always found them to be the funniest, most joyous band uh, from my my uh, my childhood. And so I am happy to uh, talk about them because I've been long obsessed with with, with this mess. So. In interesting stuff. We'll get uh, to the Smiths, our band, in a moment. But first, we ask you, Michael Moynihan, uh, what is your political beat? What do you do? How are you involved in the in, in the political ecosystem? Oh dear, horrifying ecosystem. Um, I've <laughs> I've been in, uh, I've been a, a, a writer on uh, politics for some time, and you know, I started my career uh, writing in Sweden, where I was. 
the thorn in the side of the Swedish media being this horrendous American with libertarian sensibilities, uh, which in Sweden, you might as well kind of be a fascist at that point because you know a social democrat is is a little too right wing for most of the people <laughs> so i was the 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 person that everyone really loved to hate and then i came uh, back to uh, america and i worked at reason magazine um as a sort of libertarian in the libertarian universe where um you know everywhere i go i'm politically heterodox uh, at reason i was not libertarian enough for the reason commenters who are a very special breed of people. Um, and you know, if I didn't, you know, have pants made of gold and, you know, Ron Paul tattoo on my neck, they thought I was a bit of a traitor. So <laughs> I tried to then avoid being a political writer that worked for a, a ideological magazine or outlet. So, um, or an expressly ideological magazine or outlet. So, you know, I was at the daily beast. I write a lot of, um, stuff for the Wall Street Journal. I had a piece in last week about the journalist Oriana Falacci. And so, you know, and I'm doing I'm doing a film right now for for um, a second film, uh, feature length film for HBO that I will can't say much about, but it is about um, things that are going on in Washington, D.C. now. And I basically spend my days uh, chasing down uh, politicians and interesting people in the world of politics and talking to them. Uh, and so it's a pretty, uh, a pretty nice uh, gig in some ways. And uh, I tweeted it out last night, and people should uh, go check it out. Uh, what, a couple months ago, I guess, at this point, a uh, piece from Vice uh, News Tonight on the Evergreen State College controversy you did, which is really fantastic. So people oh, can check that, that out. I, it was a very fun fun piece to do. And, um, you know, that is the type of, I mean, it's not a, it's not a heavy-handed right. uh, ideological piece. I mean, you just give them enough rope and they hang themselves. <laughs> I mean, it's, it was a pretty crazy situation, and a situation in which our main character uh, uh, is a guy named Brett Weinstein, who is a uh, Bernie voting lefty. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that was a really, really traumatic piece for me to do. <laughs> it was really fun. <laughs> I was consistently being told to uh, check my privilege, and I had to get everybody's uh, gender pronouns right in these interviews, and I kept on screwing it up. It was... Uh, <laughs> Quite <laughs> uh, which brings us to uh, our band today. Uh, we, we asked perfect transition, uh, perfect on, transition. on genderless. Uh, yeah, go. <laughs> uh, as Michael Shockingly mentioned, smooth. Yeah, as Michael <laughs> mentioned, we talk about uh, a British band uh, together for only about uh, five years and seventy plus songs, but highly influential, uh, highly loved, uh, and yet at some points by some people highly unloved as well. Uh, it's the Smiths. And Michael, we bring you back in and give you the floor to talk about how you found out about the Smiths, why you love them so much, and what what do they mean to you? Yeah, uh, highly loved and highly unloved. You you know I'm unlovable. You don't have to tell me. I mean, there's <laughs> there's you know it's, it's interesting thing with the Smiths is that it's recent in recent years I've seen younger people really embrace the Smiths as this you know seminal band that you're supposed to like but mm -hmm. at the time i mean even amongst the sort of indie rock kids and and what the time was called the sort of college music or college rock or alt alt rock it wasn't really you were really making a bold stand if you actually liked the smiths <laughs> i mean it was only recently that that became something that was rather common but i guess it, it all happened uh for me when i was i was essentially um you know i i, I was i i my older brother is, is a musician now, and he's on tour, I think, with some rather large bands um, 
that I don't know anything about that young people like now. And he had lots of records. And there was a period when I started getting into music where his walls were papered with uh, photos from Hit Parader magazine mm -hmm. and Circus magazine. And if you remember those magazines, you remember that um, they're really horrible heavy metal magazines. So that was my my sort of entry point to listening to music that wasn't my parents' music. And there was a moment uh, when my brother got a CD player. It must have been 87 or 88 or 89. And he had two CDs, uh, one of which was U2's October. And the other of which, God, was the second one? But I remember listening to that and saying, God, this is the type of music that I like. This, this sounds different than all the other stuff. And it, it went from there to somebody giving me Earth, Moon, Sun by Love and Rockets. I know <laughs> Jeff would probably remember that record. Um, and at some point, there was a great store in Massachusetts, which I, very, a very long time ago, for a reason, I wrote a piece about it called Newbury Comics. And if anybody's from the Northeast, they'll remember Newbury Comics, which... Um, most of which were neither on Newbury Street nor were they a comic store. They had <laughs> uh, records, seven inches, and the, they had this big, enormous subway posters. Do you remember those things? You used to buy these subway oh, yeah. posters. I still have a uh, few of them in my collection somewhere. Yeah, I, and I saw Queen is Dead one. And I honestly, this is absolutely true, I, I liked the typeface and I liked the cover. And I said, that's, and I used to buy records that way. <laughs> I remember I bought a Sunday's uh, before they even had a record out, I, I bought a Sunday's seven inch and I bought uh, Queen is Dead. And I went home and I remember putting Queen is Dead on and falling asleep in my brother's room with headphones on listening to Queen is Dead because that record kicks off with like a like explosive Mike Joyce, like banging on a floor tom. And so there's this fantastic bridge right away, and it's a it's a much heavier sound on that first on on, on Queen Is Dead, and like Johnny Marr's guitar is really loud. And I said, "This is pretty good." But when Morrissey started singing, I was like, "What on earth is this?" <laughs> to which my brother came <laughs> and said, "You know, accused me of of various." Uh, sins, the first of which was probably, are you gay? And I said, well, I'm 15 and I'm listening to Queen is Dead. But so, yeah, that record blew me away. And uh, I bought, I went back to Newbury Comics and the Smiths are responsible for my oldest and best friend and the, the two of us becoming friends. And I bought, God knows what I was thinking. I bought a powder blue hat full of hollow shirt which is that weird record that is basically has a bunch of leftovers on it. Um, and uh, I had a powder blue hat full of, and I, I was, I went to art class in uh, ninth grade and there was a new student uh, whose parents had moved to town from Canada and has uh, long been my best friend. And he said, God, you like the Smiths? I didn't know anybody else liked the Smiths. And that was the kind of thing with the Smiths in like late eighties um, probably mid-80s too, before I really got to know them, was it was a kind of secret language. It was a kind of a coded thing. Mm -hmm. If you liked the Smiths, you knew you were, you were a different type of person. 
And there was a, a girl that, that, and what I never understood, what I was saying at the beginning, is, is the sort of depressive element to it. Is it attracted these kind of outcast young, mostly young girls and some boys. And I remember there was a girl, and I saw her in the library, and she was, you know, a little touched. She had a, she was <laughs> a special one. And I noticed that on her arm, she had carved into her arm the word asleep. And I said, good God, what is that? And we got talking, and I remember later she told me it was because she listened to Asleep by, by the Smiths on Louder Than Bombs, and that really resonated with her. But I took a totally different thing from the Smiths. I saw this guy who was, you know, sort of pretentious and Morrissey, you know, loved Oscar Wilde, loved the literary illusions, loved, uh, I mean, really funny lyrics. I mean, if you look at, if you listen to a song like Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, is that it's only reading it on a surface level. It's like, God, I'm so miserable. Morrissey understands me. It's an incredibly funny song, mm-hmm. but nobody really recognizes that. You know, I was looking for a job and I found a job and Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. <laughs> it's the funniest line of the 80s right there, actually. I agree with <laughs> And, you know, this stuff about, you know, and not even on that song, but, you know, England is mine and owes me a living. It, like all of this stuff threads together in, in some of the funniest you know, I mean, Morrissey used to sort of, you know, swan around stage uh, with gladioli in his back pocket and his tongue planted firmly in his cheek. You all have seen those photographs of him, which I always thought was a little too heavy handed. Your tongue is that firmly planted in your cheek, which is what you get from from most of the songs. And I mean, the poppiness of them, Johnny Marr's guitar bits, I could never, ever play bass because I was trying to play bass at the time and I play, I still play a little bit now. I could never play like Andy Rourke, which is, you know, what drives, I mean, look, Mike Joyce is the only one who's sort of, you can swap him out, but Andy, whom, you know, I've spent a a couple of times, uh, one time in particular getting very drunk with, and he's a very fun, very sweet guy who lives not too far from me here in New York City. Um, Like it all came together and I said, oh God, music can be different. It didn't have to be this, you know, Bob Seger stuff that my father had, this live in the Boston record that he always put on. <laughs> and it didn't, it didn't have to be, you know, Striper, you know, <laughs> or some stuff that my brother was listening to. And it was just like, and, and oh, and they were, and they were English, which made, uh, it, it made me want to know about English things. And, you know, they were on Rough Trade, and I, just from there, that was a time, and young people don't understand this, not to get sort of, you know, too discursive. I don't want it to sound like a Clive James essay where you, you know, start on Anne Frank and you end up talking about Game of Thrones or something. But <laughs> I, it's, it's a little all over the place. But, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about all this stuff is like, you know, today I talk to kids and I say, I mean, I'm 43. I don't want to say that I'm that old but there are two questions about music that that just you know hit the ground with a thud when you ask them is where is a band from because that used to mean something Mm -hmm. bands from Minneapolis meant something the Smiths were from Manchester that meant a lot and what label are they on Hmm. you say well I don't know they're something I listen to on Spotify something on rough trade meant something you know it was a seal of quality I mean bands on postcard records in Scotland meant something they sounded like something um, you know, and, and that doesn't exist that much anymore. So the Smiths allowed me to find a whole bunch of other music too, to clever music, you know, music that wasn't like anything you could hear on the radio. And that was also a thing. And, you know, people don't understand much anymore is that radio, 
was the conduit to good music and, you know, even mixtapes you could get here and there, but they were so uh, few and far between. And, and in Massachusetts, we had a station called WFNX, which if if you got beyond FNX, you would st- start listening to WZBC, which was B- Boston College's radio station that seemed to be entirely staffed by people who not only didn't go to Boston College, but probably never went to high school. <laughs> and, you know, we used to joke about it. We'd get in the car and turn the radio on and it would be a 40 minute soundscape <laughs> you know? and you just wait for the fall to come on or something. Yeah. And that's, and, uh, and uh, Mark, Amy Smith would come on right now. Like, what is this? And then you would have to wait an enormous amount of time and hope this hopelessly stoned 22 year old singer <laughs> at a booth in Chestnut Hill would remember to tell you who the band was that you just heard. And right. if it didn't, it would haunt you forever. And that was the great thing about, and, and again, to get Clive Jamesy about it, start with the Smiths and end with, it was re- the Smiths were important to me because they allowed me to discover music that I otherwise wouldn't have discovered. The Smiths, to me, were uh, a band that I did not discover until I was in college. And it was, in fact, you know, and Michael will laugh about this because he basically described the kind of girl who introduced me to the Smiths, who was that really weird, arty chick who smoked closed cigarettes over the hill. And uh, her name was Molly. Her family raised horses in upstate New York. She was very, <laughs> very weird. Uh, she was the kind of girl who liked a lot of cool music, so we bonded on that level. And then when I went, I was you know, sitting in her dorm room, and I was looking through her music collection. I was like, oh, the Smiths. I've heard lots of good things about them. This would be 1998 or so. And and I was like, hey, can I borrow these? Can I rip these CDs? You know, this is back when you had to take CDs and rip them to your computer um, in, like, waveform or MP3. And she was absolutely adamant that I could not take them. She got almost a little bit creepy on me. She was like, no, no, the Smiths albums, they can never leave my possession ever. And you can just imagine the eyes getting really wide and a little bit beady eyed. I'm like, whoa, okay, okay, I'm going to take a step back here. That's a little bit strange. But I thought to myself, any band that is capable of inspiring that level of obsession it's something that I have to explore. And so what did I do? Um, you know, Michael talked about Newberry Records. Well, we had a store that was similar to that uh, when I went to college. It was in Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Not nearly as hip a uh, college town as Boston, <laughs> obviously. But I, uh, I went there, and I literally bought every single Smiths album at once. This is the joy of having student loan disposable income. I just said, you know what? I'm going to pass up on my uh, meals for the month, and I'm just going to buy these CDs instead. And I got all of them, and boy, the minute I started buying these records and looking into them, I was blown away. Because just like Michael, uh, I had sort of vaguely known uh, via things like that Mystery Science Theater 3000 parody I laid on you at the beginning of the show that Morrissey had a reputation for being a mopey son of a bitch. But when I listened to the actual music, I found it first – to be his his lyrics to be genuinely humorous and self-parodying. Yes, mm-hmm. there's legitimate self-pity in there. He, he is a, a a deeply mopey person in a lot of ways, but the the literary archly self-conscious humor of his lyrics really shone through to me. And I, I didn't understand why other people hadn't picked up on this. But of course, the other thing that grabbed me was was uh, Johnny Marr. 
Johnny Marr, of course, everyone talks about Morrissey because Johnny Marr didn't really go on to have a prominent solo career under his own name. But Marr is, if not an equal partner, you could argue in some ways uh, a slightly a tick more 51 to 49 more important contributor to the Smiths. The songwriting that he brought to the band um, was just amazing. And it was so powerful to me as a classic rock kid the way I had grown up because he, he believed in all of those eternal verities. He believed in tunefulness. He believed in concise pop forms. He loved guitars and not like sort of heavy metal sludge guitars, but he wanted to play everything sprightly. He wanted to layer 16 guitars onto one track and make it sound like it was just one instrument playing. He wanted to work everything in to a very concise, compact, you know, bite-sized pop confection that made you just want to keep hitting it over and over and over again. And I had been stunned when I first bought this music because I had never heard any of the songs before. Not a one of them. The Smiths were a name that was sort of like a vague echo in the back of my head. It's like, well, you know, that's a band that seems to be important. And then I bought them and I listened to them and immediately I understood why my friend Molly was psychopathically obsessive about this group. Yeah, I, I would have let other people borrow my CDs and copy them to their computer. I wouldn't have gone that far. But I understood why people could get that way about this band because they had all of the eternal verities. And they are one of the great sort of blazing comets of the 1980s and maybe in all of modern pop music history of the scene. They screamed across the sky every second that they released lyrics. They released – rather, they released music as a band was worth hearing. And then I almost consider it a blessing they – immediately snuffed themselves out uh, before they could ever have a decline phase. They, they went out on top. Everything they ever did was worth knowing. That's, I mean, that's right. The, the, the thing about it is that there was a Queen is Dead uh, reissue that just came out uh, a couple weeks ago, and they've thrown together a few singles, you know, to, to sort of, you know, everybody makes fun of uh, Morrissey for doing what he denounced in the song Paint a Vulgar Picture, you know, reissue, repackage, you know, reevaluate the songs. Extra tracks in a tacky badge. In a tacky badge, yeah. No, I mean, but but the thing about it is that they don't have much that uh, hasn't been released. I mean, there's, there, Mike Joyce apparently has a few tapes of some instrumentals, but, you know, everything that the Smiths recorded, we pretty much have heard. Of course, there's, you know, you know, outtakes and sort of different mixes of things. But as far as songs, no, that's pretty, pretty much it. There is, there's a couple that have been released and found and popped on YouTube, but yeah, I mean, they, they went very hard for, for a few years uh, for, you know, till, you know, I guess it was 87, 88. And then that, that was it. And I don't, I never wanted to heed the calls for, I don't, I never wanted them to heed the calls to, 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 you know, reunite. And of course, because of all the court cases, uh, particularly Mike Joyce's court case, you can't, you won't do that. Morrissey's actually written songs about Mike Joyce, about how much he hates him. Those songs he's ever written, uh, one on maladjusted about, uh, specifically about judges and how horrible judges are. 
Um, well, the, judges, the judges thought Morrissey was pretty awful too. So. Yes. <laughs> and, and, yes. and said that. Um, and, you know, I can't remember. It's on Vauxhall and I too. There's that lyric, you know, you bear more grudges than lonely high court judges. Um, but yeah, so that's, it's never coming back, but it's, it does inspire this, as you're saying about your friend, this kind of, or this, the, the girl that introduced you to this mess, this cult-like devotion. There's a few kind of Scientology bands that get to a point of, you know, slobbering sycophants that kind of show up and follow them around. You know, it's like the Grateful Dead doesn't even really count because it has less to do with the music than all the people I knew that wanted to, to you know, inhale nitrogen. Get high, right, yeah. Yeah, nitrogen oxide, like you know, nitrogen from balloons, whatever is it nitrogen? What is it? Nitrous oxide from balloons and, you know, sell peanut butter sandwiches and just be able to see the country. <laughs> it's different with the Smiths. I, in 1994, picked up sticks, decided to take a semester off of school, which was, I found, incredibly tedious at the time and, you know, later changed my mind on that. But I had met a British woman who uh, was an exchange student and she was dating a friend of mine, uh, but she was fantastically beautiful and lovely. And we ended up becoming friends and they broke up and she said, you know, you should come over to England. But before she got that last syllable of <laughs> England, I was sitting on a plane, you know, reading a copy of The Spectator in the private eye, ready to go to England. <laughs> I had so many, like my literary tastes had been, had been shaped by, by, you know, when you're looking for Smith's things and this is how it kind of spreads. This is the, the, the sort of, you know, infecting the groundwater of your life. I used to go to out-of-town news in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and right across from Harvard, they had all these foreign publications. And for all the people, you know, foreigners at Harvard, uh, and, you know, copies of Der Spiegel, and you get the NME, and at the time, Melody Maker, Q Magazine, et cetera. And I just started, you know, realizing there was a world where everyone spoke the same language that I did, but I didn't understand anything. And it was incredibly challenging. You know, people but did were, you start? Well, did you start watching Shelley Delaney plays? That's what I really. I, <laughs> no, I started watching Mike Lee movies. Uh, you know, uh, I, Mike Lee movies, and you know, Evelyn Law novels and things like that. And I said, God, it all comes from Morrissey. And it wasn't because I was an Anglophile. It was like absolutely loathe that term, and I really don't like people who are Anglophiles. But it just was. It, it was this point in my life where. You know, the mind was opening up to all these things that you wanted to, new novels and new music. And I just happened to be kind of hitting this vein of, of British stuff. And so when Candace, fantastically named Candace, who unfortunately I can't track down now because her, her last name is so boring that there's <laughs> in the world. But I'm sure she, you know, is like a nurse of the NHS or something now. But I, you know, Candace, you know, said, come, come, um, I live in Stratford-upon-Avon with my parents, but I'm going back to university. And she was going back to university in Manchester. So I went to Manchester, and I remember getting a Manchester A to Z guide. And if you've been to England, you remember these A to Z guides, which had you know every street and it was just kind of a you know boring book that you had to flip the pages to try to figure out where you were. And I was piecing all these pages together, together loping around Manchester, trying to find the Salford Lads Club. And this, this is like this is like the jam strange town basically in 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 real life in other words yeah exactly exactly yeah and, and and you know the amazing thing when when that band with the smiths had meant so much to me and i bought everything i could and i listened to them uh nonstop, i i noticed everywhere i went that that 
there was these echoes of these songs. I remember trying to find an apartment and, <laughs> and I went to see this horrible place. Wally Range? In Wally Range. Yeah. <laughs> what do we get for our treble and pain? I rented it in Wally Range. And I ended up living in Rushall. So, uh, uh, you know, right by the Rushall Chippy. I, right. And, you know, Rushall Ruffians, the fantastic uh, song on, on Meet His Murder, which is actually, with the exception of the song Meet His Murder, an incredibly undervalued album by a lot of people. Um, and you know everything you know was was you know it was there it was sitting there in front of me and I was like good god this is actually this stuff exists it isn't some sort of you know hazy fantasy of Morrissey these are the actual places which to, at, at that age I thought was incredibly interesting and I remember going to another record store and you emailed me, Jeff, if, to ask me if I knew about this. But I went to a record store um, in Burnage, I think, um, which is where I believe Oasis is from. And I went into the record store and I had no money. I'd taken a very small amount. My parents didn't give me any money. They didn't have any money themselves. And I used the money that I had to buy a bootleg, which was 20 pounds at the time probably about $30, something like that, to buy a bootleg of the Troy Tate Sessions of the original recording of the Smiths' self-titled debut. All right, I'm going to stop you right there, all right? Because this is actually a great way to transition into the first part of their career. So I'm, you know, for those who are, I think a lot of people who listen to this will already know the Smiths, but for those who don't know, the Smiths began as sort of like a startup proposition on spec, you know, uh, Johnny Marr walked up to, uh, you know, Stephen Morrissey's doorstep and said, I'd like to write songs with you. Um, and they became like the Rodgers and Hammerstein of rock music. <laughs> then they recorded on spec. They didn't have a record contract. They just worked it up in rehearsals. One of the first songs they ever did, a song called Hand in Glove, <clears throat> which we're going to probably hear a lot more about because it's one of the most important songs in their career. And then they finally managed to secure a contract. It was with Rough Trade Records, as Michael mentioned. It's probably the most sort of, you know, it's a, a signal. It's a virtue signal to people <laughs> who love indie music, and especially UK indie music. Um, it was them, and then The Fall were with them, too, for a period of time. Um, a lot of really great bands uh, that uh, you should pay attention to. But they went to record their first album, and they hired Troy Tate who was a, uh, the guitarist of a forgotten band that was actually pretty okay called The Teardrop Explodes. Julian Cope was another member of that band, another guy whose solo career is interesting in his own way. Um, then they recorded that session with Troy Tate. It's all of the songs in their initial first batch of material they had written, and they didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. They played it around for people, and people said, oh, this isn't very good, this isn't very good. Um, they ended up not releasing it, having to scotch the entire thing because Johnny Marr walked up to John Porter, who's a guy who was a BBC producer, former member of Roxy Music for that matter, um, and said, hey, what do you think of this? Hey, you think you could you know, touch this up? You wanted to take it to a true like, you know, London pro? And uh, Porter said, you know, honestly, I, I, I think it would be 
probably cheaper, easier, and more successful if we just re-recorded it from scratch, given that you guys were essentially playing live anyways. This is not an overproduced record, um, which is interesting because the rest of the Smith material would be very overproduced. And that ended up resulting in the first album, The Smiths, which is the debut, and a lot of people have very conflicting opinions on this. Um, before I, I turn it over to everyone to talk about this, I would like to ask Scott uh, to, to tell me what his thoughts on this. And I have to ask you too, Scott, have you ever heard the Troy Tate stuff? And I specifically would ask, have you ever heard that original version of Reel Around the Fountain, which I think ultimately may be one of my five top choices when we do this at the end? So I'd heard a couple of tracks from the uh, from the Tate sessions, and then you were kind enough to share the rest. So I think I may have only heard that version of Reel Around the Fountain once before uh, this podcast. So no deep thoughts on that particular track. I want to go back to something Mike said a long time ago about the college kids these days. So you guys might, you know, you know, listeners might know, I work at Hillsdale College, and I run the radio station, and I teach journalism classes. And so each week we do the show, and I'm doing a little prep, but I have things at my desk. And this week... Three different students were in my office, kind of, we were talking about things at the station. They looked around and they saw we were doing the Smiths this week. And all three of them were like, wow, you're doing the Smiths? I love the Smiths. So these are kids that were born in 1998, 1999, somewhere in that oh, range. It horrifies me. Um, but big fans, big fans of, of the Smiths all around me here. Um, and I, I didn't ask them specifically what they thought of the first album, but uh, I'll tell you what I think, which is um, I think of the four proper of the four proper Smiths albums, this one probably is my, would be fourth. Um, I, I agree with Mikey. He had mentioned he thinks Meat is Murder is a little underrated outside the title track. I, I agree with that. So this one might go toward toward the bottom of the stack. And they're all good, of course. Um, but, you know, you've got uh, some really good things on here. And for me, the track that stands out on this album is uh, What Difference Does It Make, which uh, was one of the singles released off the album. Some strong hooks and some and some really nice guitars and the falsetto in the outro from, from Morrissey. songs that I actually appreciated more when I heard someone else do it, when I heard someone else cover it. And in this case, it was uh, it was actually Bobby Bear Jr., who's the son of Bobby Bear, the big country star, uh, who had a string of really good albums in the late 90s and early 2000s. But on one of the albums, he did a cover of What Difference Did It Make? Very stripped down, uh, a little bit slower. And that helped me really appreciate the Smith version even more on this on this first album. Uh, You've Got Everything Now is a very standout track for me on this one. Um, kind of a, a send-off to a rival. Great Johnny Marr guitar line on You've Got Everything Now. Um, well, this Charming Man, it's a, this is, you know, with the singles and the A's and the B's and the U.S. and the U.K., this Charming Man was actually released before the Smiths album and was only on the U.S. version, not the U.K. version. Is that straight? It's not a part of the album. Okay. I'll insist this to the day <laughs> I die. Just like How Soon Is Now is not a part of Meet Is Murder. Damn it. There's a lot of melody and beauty on the album. And Jeff, you might have tweeted this from one of your past tweet storms. Uh, you know, I read your tweets before we actually started the this, this show together, so I'm remembering from months ago. 
I don't know if you had compared this this first Smiths album to uh, REM's Murmur. Yes. Um, and I think there's a lot to that in, in the melody and kind of the, let's say, the, the prettiness, the beauty uh, of the songs, and also being unlike what was happening right at that time. And when we did the REM episode, you might recall I was not as high on Murmur as I was some of REM's uh, subsequent albums and i think that's just pretty much where i am with this one Uh, the subsequent stuff i think is better there are some really true highlights on on the debut album and certainly they were as many of the bands we cover fully formed from from day one they they had the idea they knew what they were doing with morrissey's lyrics and johnny mar's guitar work and mar is just so good uh straight from from album number one so um that's where i am on this on this debut well scott i'm here to tell you that everything you just said is wrong it happens uh, sometimes (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, you, you know nothing. You know nothing of the Smiths or their work, uh, but like, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I have said this before, and I will say it again. Of their four actual studio albums, I actually think this is the best one. And I know that's a minority opinion. I recognize the fact that most people would cite the Queen is dead. The band themselves would cite Strange Ways. I think that the debut album, despite the fact that there are songs on this record that don't work or didn't work as well as it did in the earlier versions, particularly Miserable Lie as an album, as a song on on the recorded album that just is a failure. Yes, It doesn't work. It was much better live. It was much better on the Troy Tate version. Um, I Don't Owe You Anything. It's kind of, it's just sort of a a, kind of a weak, weak sister ballad. It doesn't have much to offer. Everything else in this album is great. It is not the Smiths' best album, quote, because I think there's another one that's a semi-compilation that's even better. But I think it is the one that holds together second for second as their original studio works, uh, as well as anything they ever did. And I think that, that the highlight isn't Hand in Glove, which was their first single, and it is here. And it's not What Difference Does It Make, which the band famously got tired of. Uh, the highlight is Real Around the Fountain, the first song on their first album, which is um, they did an alternate version of it on the Troy Tate reels that has been officially released since then that is equally as brilliant. But this is the sort of opening manifesto of the Smiths. It has everything that they brought to it. It has the weird Morrissey, you know, psychosexual, homoerotic tension. Mm -hmm. It has a truly beautiful, long, slowly unfurling Johnny Marr musical theme with all these sort of layered guitars and soft sort of consoling, um, you know, arpeggios playing in the background. Has, uh, you know, a a very subtle piano, I think, played by Paul Carrick, of all people. Yes, it is. Um, It's just beautiful. It's perfect. It's five minutes long. I wouldn't want it one second shorter. It is, to me, one of the great achievements of the Smith's entire career. I think almost everything else in this album is just as good. You mentioned You've Got Everything Now. You've Got Everything Now is wonderful because it's hilarious and it completely embodies the tension in Morrissey's lyrics. He is 
genuinely making fun of himself for being angry about like the jock in high school who was <laughs> handsome and all the girls loved him and now he's successful and you know Morrissey's just sitting there as a bed sit room yuzo and wishes he could be like him and he's parodying himself but you know there's a core in Morrissey's heart that is deadly effing serious genuinely resentful of it and the tension between i'm really angry at you and yet i realize how ridiculous i sound for being really angry at you is <laughs> i guess essentially defines what he would bring to the smiths as a lyricist and it's that humor that i love um still ill uh probably opening with some of the most iconic lines of the Smith's entire career, which is, you know, I decree that life today is for taking and not giving. England is mine and it owes me a living. Ask me why and I'll spit in your eye. It's just Morrissey being uh, just an insouciant bastard. It's wonderful. Um, and then it ends with a song that I think a lot of people don't really give enough credit to called Suffer Little Children, which is uh, about the Moors murders, which is if you live in England, you know a lot more about this than you would if you live in the United States. It was uh, an early 60s serial killer uh, incident in Manchester where a bunch of young boys and girls went missing. It turns out that they were uh, killed by a pair of uh, you know lovers. Uh, I think uh, I don't know if it was a husband and wife or it was a boyfriend and girlfriend who were abducting these kids and murdering them. Um, this is, you know, Morrissey was at the same age as all these children. It was one of these things that had haunted Manchester culture for years. They wrote a song about it. It's a very sensitive song, a very thoughtful and intelligent song. And it got them in a lot of trouble, in fact, with the BBC and with, you know, the tabloids at the time because they thought they misunderstood the, the, the meaning of the song. And they thought, oh, well, Morrissey's just you know, callously exploiting this. It wasn't really that at all. It's a very disturbing, probably the, the darkest way that any Smith's album ends and the most interesting way I would argue that any Smith's album ends. Um, this is a great record, and I endorse it entirely, despite the fact that, yes, I agree that some of the songs on it are compromised. The other one I will mention is that The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, if you've ever heard the original version of it, it's a piece of flaming garbage. It's one of the first songs they ever wrote. It was terrible. When John Porter took it, that song over and made them rearrange it and re-record it on the album, it becomes one of the most haunting, ghostly numbers this band would ever record, and it was proof positive that his involvement with the band was a huge benefit to them. Um, I, I have to say, it's not one of my, I mean, of the four, I would say it's probably three or four. I am actually a, a Strange Ways fan, as Morrissey and Marr were. It's overproduced. The drums sound terrible, but it's a great record. Um, you know, and, but on the same, it is a fantastic album. And it's hard, obviously, because, you know, this Drowning Man not being on it, but that as a single and kind of contemporaneous with, with this stuff is uh, fantastic primarily because of the couple of versions of that song, which are terrific. And I know we touched upon it briefly. So just to say that, and, um, you know, the B sides uh, with it's accept yourself, uh, mm -hmm. the completely uh, underrated song, wonderful woman, 
which is totally forgotten about. And if you want to hear an amazing version of it, this was played in, at the Hacienda in 1983, and it, there was like a pro shot uh, footage of it. And the original version of Wonderful Woman. On That's it. literally the second concert the band had ever played. Had played, yeah. And it's basically showing how they make sense. And they do a version of Wonderful Woman, and it's not fully formed yet, called What Does He See in Her, which is an even better version. Uh, and it also has uh, the other B-side was Gene, mm-hmm. which uh, beside, is a terrific song that is ruined by a bridge that sounds like it's from a Rush song. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we tried and we failed, we tried and we failed and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's ice on the sink where we bathe. How can you call us a home when you know it's a grave? I mean, it's a terrific song, but you know, also when you, this, the beginning of the debut album is a reel around the fountain. Is not, it's a ter- it's a terrific song. Production's a bit strange on it, but um, in both, I think in both instances, but it, the lyrics on it are, are are depressing and funny, and it's the closest that Morrissey ever gets to writing a Philip Larkin poem. And <laughs> you can pin and mount me like a butterfly, and it's a terrific a, a terrific. The hand that rocks the cradle, I, I can't uh, stand it. Um, really, just I think it's a, a terrible song. Well, uh, do you hate the lyrics, or is it the music that bothers you? The whole thing. I mean, it comes together in this confluence of awfulness, which I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've heard the original version, which is like seventeen times worse. I seventeen times worse. Um, I mean, "Suffer Little Children," as you point out, is pretty funny because it's about the Moors murders and the. I used to have the 12 inch. I think I left it in Manchester actually of all places when I, when I took off from there, but it had that it, one of the controversies was the 12 inch had um, uh, Viv Nicholson on it. And it was this shot that was supposed to look like Myra Hindley. Right. It was, it was one, one of the, was one of the Moore's murderers, the killers. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, there's, there was a big country. So it was the first, one of the first things where the, the Smiths got, national press and it wasn't national press in the melody maker and nme it was national press of like who are these boorish mancunians making yeah, it was like the news of the world and the daily mail right exactly um and you know the manchester evening news and stuff was kicked the whole thing off and and saying that the the relatives of the vic- victims were upset and they and morrissey actually met with them and and said you know it's not what you think and that actually actually clarified things in a way but i think that you know i i think jeff you're a little you're a little too mean on uh, i don't owe you anything but this is a this is a really kind of divisive point too i really love the sandy shaw version ah. <laughs> and most people don't uh most people don't like any of the sandy shaw i mean it, the, the version of gene which that i like that i think is great and it doesn't have that Alex Lifeson kind of guitar-y breakdown in the middle, and it's just an acoustic version. It's very, very good. But, um, yeah, and I think that the, the it's also the record where you realize that Andy Rourke is possibly one of the most uh, important members of the band, especially on Pretty Girls Make Graves. Yes. Which, you know, Johnny Mark could actually probably be, like, you know, you know, getting a curry or something during it because it's, it's like, absolutely driven. Uh, by by Andy, yes. that, uh, bounce, that bouncing bass—it's like a ball. You gotta like follow the bouncing ball, just boom, boom. No, boom, I, it's boom, it's boom, boom. you know it's like white British, slightly depressed Northern Grand Funk Railroad, right?
with a whinging uh, guy from Wally Range on the top of it. <laughs> and it's a song about a guy who can't perform sexually, so yeah. his girlfriend leaves him for the bigger hunk on the beach. It's yeah, such yeah. a weird conceit. No, it's like a Beach Boys song, too, in that way. Right? <laughs> Gone horribly wrong. It's- yeah. But I'll say that you know, it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, I think and I have to come to the defense of Andy Rourke, who I think has has been unfairly lumped in with Mike Joyce because Mike Joyce was actually the one that filed the lawsuit, uh, and I think Andy was compelled to testify. But I spent a day with him a couple years ago, and it was a rather sad uh, uh, day. I mean, we had an incredibly fun time. We we drank for about nine hours, but he was doing his East Village radio show, and I met him because he was taking the L train in from Bushwick, and this is about four or five years ago, and it was at Bushwick in Brooklyn now is is the place where all these, um, in, you know, insufferable, insufferable little children, uh, insufferable hipsters live. But at the time, it was just kind of a cheap place to live. And I said, good God, Andy Rourke is living in Bushwick. That's, that's Something's not right about that. And he told me a story about, you know, basically how Morrissey and Marr uh, fleeced him out of out of all of his money and any royalties. And I don't, I, I believe that you probably should have fleeced Mike Joyce because <laughs> anyone could have done that. Uh, not necessarily the case with, with Andy, definitely not the case with Andy, but he told me this story um, when he was getting on at a stop about five, six stops in from Manhattan. And as you get closer to Manhattan, the train of course fills up. If you're on there earlier, you're likely to get a seat. And he's telling me about having a seat and this strap hanger coming one day holding the pole above him and him looking up and seeing his own face. And he was wearing a uh, Queen is Dead t-shirt with that famous photo (laughs) in Salford at the Salford Lads Club. And he said he wanted to take scissors and just cut it out uh, because he would never see a nickel. He was living in Bushwick in a, you know, not rough circumstances, but certainly not great circumstances. And he was doing a, a radio show on East Village Radio. And then I decided to write about this because I, I went to see a Smith cover band called The Sons and Heirs. Well, that's true. That's true devotion. There. That's true devotion. <laughs> uh, well, I, I went to two actually. One I went for just to see what it was like, and then I wrote a piece about going going onto a, a, a cruise like uh, around uh, up and down the East River with the same Smith cover band. Um, and the singer of the Smiths cover band was not a particular fan of the Smiths. He just sounded like Morrissey. And <laughs> that's, that, that's like a nightmare. It's like, I don't even like this band. I just have to do this. Yeah, I, he actually like said, I make good money doing this. So <laughs> he's probably making more money than Andy was. But the, the best thing about it was it was like the Ruddles in the sense that the guitar player is very, very good. They still play. Is an Indian guy who goes by the name of Ravi Mar. Uh, <laughs> and that night that I saw them, the opening act... And I, I like to put it that way because it makes it more depressing. The opening act was Andy Rourke. Uh, as, it was DJing. Um, and so I said to him, I was sitting with him at a bar in the East Village and putting this question to him, which was, I guess, phrased in a way that was going to, going to you know, wound. It wasn't intentional. It was going to a bad place, right? Yeah. Well, I said to him, I said, what's it like opening for a band <laughs> that features a member pretending to be you? And he was like, well, I only did it as a favor. And, you know, I, they, they're nice guys. And, I, you know, it makes me feel like that kind of thing to do it. And I realized that, you know, this guy who is such an important 
part of the band in so many ways. I mean, if there's, I, I mean, so many songs that if you remove that, if you just pull the bass down on the board, mm-hmm. you, you have this jangly sort of bright, fantastic guitar sound, but it sounds incredibly thin with uh, Rourke on those records. And so I, I just, I thought it was so terrifying and sad that, that this guy is like just sort of walking around these kids in, in, in Williamsburg and, and Bushwick that are wearing Smith's t-shirts and they haven't a clue who this guy is and he's not making a nickel from it. I mean, I think you're absolutely right about the importance of Andy Rourke to the Smiths. And I think the funny thing is that the next few singles that come up are the ones that prove it. So uh, this is, and, and it kind of takes me into, uh, you know, the next question I will we'll throw out to Scott and to you, Michael, um, that the, the Smiths comes out, it's kind of a flop. Here's the thing about the Smiths for as beloved as they are as a cult band, they are solidly in the rock canon. They never even had that much commercial success in the UK, much less the United States. The debut album didn't do that well. They are now universally, and this is the question I would probably end up asking you guys, considered one of the greatest singles bands, maybe the last truly great singles band of the rock era in the United Kingdom. I would, again, argue the last truly great singles band of the rock era in whether the U.S. or the U.K. because they were famous for their non-album singles. Mm -hmm. Right after the Smiths come out, you have two releases. The first of them is Heaven Knows and Miserable Now. Boy, if you want to talk about a great Andy Rourke bass line, that's a great Andy Rourke bass line. I, I would hum it here if I didn't want to bore you. wonderful and then you have on the b-side girl afraid which is even cooler uh, another kind of a hard rock song and then you have william it was really nothing which i will argue is the greatest single ever released by any band in the entire decade of the 1980s a non-album single you have three tracks the a-side is william it was really nothing it's two minutes and change of a a rush a blur and the land is ours. Then you have on the B-side, please, please, please let me get what I want. A lot of people maybe only know this song from an instrumental version on Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And then you have the last second edition of How Soon Is Now, which is the most famous Smith song of all time, certainly in the United States. And it was thrown away as an afterthought on a B-side. And then later on, they had second thoughts, and they included it on, you know, you know, as a, as a bonus track on their on the Amita's Murder album. But that is the greatest single uh, ever released, and it kind of proves. And you'll see this later, especially after um, you know, the Queen is Dead era. They have five, four to five singles that aren't album singles. Uh, this band was truly dependent on non-album releases. They are, in my opinion, 
the greatest singles act of the 80s. I think the only one that competes with them is New Order. New Order played a different game than they did because what new, made New Order great is that they had these 12-inch dance mixes that were mm-hmm. very long and creative. The Smiths were all about packing everything in to as much, you know, as as much money for your second of listening attention that they could give you. Scott, I'm going to ask you first, do you what do you think about these non-album singles? Do you agree with me? And if you don't agree with me, why are you so wrong? No, um, uh, we're 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 right on this one. Uh, the, the first album, maybe I was I was wrong, or you know, this we're, we're good. The, the singles are so important to uh, the Smiths in their career, and so important to uh, moving things forward. I guess is what I want to say. But you know, th- this period here, which you touched on is so prolific in terms of the good stuff that comes out. You know, How Soon is now, uh, probably if you know one Smith song, it's that one. I have no idea if this is true. I always hear uh, How Soon is Now, I, I don't think it can be true based on the timing, but I think it should be the song that Tom Cruise is listening to as he drives that that Porsche around in Risky Business, like on the dark streets <laughs> of Chicago. No, timing I mean, is off, but I get right. it. It the, feels like, right. That's just the song that, I, that he should be driving to. The timing doesn't work, but he should be. Vibrato effect and the eerie kind of spooky tension throughout it, and what a great, uh, uh, what a great guitar sound from from Johnny Marr throughout House. That's a six minute song. Um, it doesn't feel that way. And the Smiths were great too in knowing when to when to get out. Um, and heck, even please, please, please let uh, let me get what I want. That's like that's less than two minutes, I think. And you think that they're going to come back with the chorus one more time, but they don't. It just it just ends. That's and all. And it's there so is to perfect. It. It's such yep. a perfect way the music serves the lyric. This is you know, people often talk about, like, oh well, you know, you know, Morrissey wrote the music, or Morrissey wrote the lyrics, Mar wrote the music. It's not a true collaboration. I'm like, listen, you don't understand how that kind of a collaboration can truly work. This service of the lyric to the melody and the music has never been more perfect than it was on Please Please because it's mm-hmm. such a desperate lyric and you keep hoping, well, there's going to be a, a reprise, a final answer, but no, it just dies. It dies before where you expect that final refrain, that final verse and chorus to come in and it just leaves you wanting more and then you, you think back on the title and you're like, okay, I get it. So for once in my life let me get what I want Lord knows it would be the first time Lord knows it would be the first time That makes sense. That really makes a lot of sense. And yeah, a- I'm, I'm going to correct you on one thing because I'm going to be pedantic about this. The the uh, instrumental version in Ferris Bueller is actually Dream Academy. 
It actually isn't an instrumental Smith's version. It's really? A, oh, I, 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 I knew it wasn't quite them because it didn't sound like they're, they're instrumental. Well, I mean, it sounds like, you know, a keyboard, like 808 mandolin on it, uh, which is which is like slightly weird at the end. Right. But you're actually right. I mean, William, William It Was Really Nothing is, I bought that 12-inch uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts with that fantastic cover. Um, of the, the woman uh, lying in bed. I can't remember what sort of kinch, kitchen sink uh, 60s film it was from. But it's, you know, a perfect song, and all those singles are, are perfect. And I, I have to say that if it goes beyond two, two and a half minutes, it's why I never liked How Soon As Now, is that I'm Phil, really? I'm Phil Spector about these things. If you're going <laughs> beyond two and a half minutes for a pop single, you're doing it wrong. Keep it short. I like the the two minute. I mean, William was really nothing. I think it's like two minutes and ten seconds. Yep. So yep. you 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 have the philosophy that we expressed a couple times before on the podcast, which is don't bore us, get to the chorus. <laughs> well, exactly, and it's. I mean, the difference, and, and and you know, you say the other great sort of, particularly a great British singles band of the eighties is New Order, and there's something that about after Ian Curtis commits suicide. And Bernard Sumner releases, you know, Everything's Gone Green and all these things that are effectively Joy Division songs. And then there's that enormous shift. And that's why they become a singles band, because like if like in 83, they released Confusion, which they came to New York to record because they recorded it with Arthur Baker. And right, this, yeah. these are just dance records. That's not a good song, though. <laughs> no, no. That's a song that is fantastic when there's been a lot of things that have, have, have found their way up your right. Exactly. When you're doing a lot of E or uh, something other powdery substance, right? You know, I think of guys with like leg warmers on and roller skates, like skating backwards <laughs> at like the, you know, danceateria for an eight minute Arthur Baker <laughs> remix of Confusion. But they, they were a singles band because all of those, even like the great poppy singles have, you know, famous or reasonably famous uh, British and American DJs doing like eight, nine minute mixes of them. And they were, they became like, they were half a club band and half Peter Hook playing his bass below his knee. Uh, it, like a live act that sounded like, you know, an indie band from the 80s. And they had this kind of bifurcated thing. And the Smiths just released these singles that, you know, couldn't find their way onto onto records. And some of them are, are incredibly strange. Like, you know, um, uh, Johnny Marr, uh, God, it's on. Where did where did they collect that? World won't listen, I guess. Um, a, a song that ultimately becomes a Brian Ferry song, and well, Brian Ferry steals it, it from money, right money, Was it the Dre's train, or is it money changes yeah, money, everything? Money changes everything, right? Hmm. Uh, which uh, is a terrific song that is, as you said, this kind of uh, relationship between Morrissey's uh, lyrics, Morrissey's writing. And Johnny Mars guitar. I mean, it, it always makes sense. These things, you know, are evocative of the music. And I don't know what Morrissey could have written to Money Changes Everything, but Brian Ferry is the perfect kind of slicked back hair, 1989, right, the right stuff, which makes perfect <laughs> sense. And when you see like Johnny Mars, like brilliant, brilliant uh, sort of jangly guitar playing in the hands of somebody else, it just becomes something different. And I, I see that with two things right after the Smiths broke up, and it's the Vuzz Beaten Generation, which is terrific, yeah. and then uh, Nothing But Flowers by the Talking Heads. Because yes. Johnny, Johnny Marr plays the guitar, right? Yeah, and it, I mean, there is a Smithy guitar solo, but it is, you know, if you're not paying attention, it's a David Byrne song. It's, the guitar is kind of 
subsumed to, to, to the the David Byrne-ness of it all. Yes, but that that that's the Johnny Mark home. The Johnny Mar hallmark is almost that he's not like he's not Eddie Van Halen. Like right. he just always works for whatever right. the purpose of the song is. He has no yeah. there's no obvious I want to say no obvious greatness, but there's you know there's no big giant solos in the Smith song. There's no signature there's style. There's no signature stuff. He works toward the the greater song, so to speak. He works whatever it needs. He's there and can do it all and then arrange it all too, uh, which he did for a lot of the Smith stuff. That's what makes him special. And the, yeah. the, the worst song, in my opinion, the worst Smith, worst Smith song, I can't remember the last time I didn't skip it, is when Johnny Marr is playing like he's, you know, the, 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 the fifth Ashton brother from the Stooges or something. It, it, it's, it's London which is an absolutely terrible song. It's just him like stepping on a pedal. And this is stuff that should be coming out of a Marshall stack. I kind of like that song, Michael. I don't know. (laughs) You can be wrong sometimes. I mean, it it flattens the the greatness of his playing and it's just too gritty and boring that, that sort of repetitiveness to it. But there's moments of it in, in the chorus where it's where, you know, you see a little of it shining through like a second and third, you know, overdub track, but just on its own, I just, I don't like it because it doesn't highlight how good he is of a player. I think it's funny that you mentioned London. I actually tend to agree. And of course, anybody who saw my long tweet storm about the Smiths knows that I feel this way is that I think that they were least successful when they tried to get heavy, uh, kind of the same way the Beatles, which, you know, is a very flattering comparison for the Smiths were least successful when they try to get heavy. I think Helter Skelter is just a flaming piece of garbage. I hate that song. <laughs> I don't like your blues that much. I don't like I Want You, She's So Heavy. The Smiths on London, it's the only time I think they pulled it off. I don't like The Queen Is Dead. We're going to get to that in a moment, the title track. I don't like a lot of their heavier, harder takes, precisely for the reason that Michael just said. But I want to get back to what he said earlier about The World Won't Listen, a compilation album. The Smiths are famous for compilation albums. Um, there are many. In fact, if you're an American fan, then the one you probably know the most is Louder Than Bombs because it was released for the American market. Mm-hmm. Louder Than Bombs, you don't need it. I think it's just a disposable mess. What you really need is the one compilation the Smiths ever released during their working lifetime that is truly worthy of standing beside their regular albums. And I am going to uh, start fist fights here if I have to to say this is the best Smiths album ever released. It is called Hatful of Hollow. It was released in 1984. It was almost in its own way a rethink of the debut. All the fans, the band themselves thought to themselves, well, you know, the, the, the album as it was released, it didn't really capture the power of this group. Our BBC sessions did a much better job of it. And so instead of just making this one of those what-if propositions that uh, you know would only be debated by the hardcores, they said, screw it. We're going to release a new album. They licensed all of the best BBC tracks, and then they threw on all of those non-album singles that we've just talked about, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, William Was Really Nothing, How Soon Is Now, Girl Afraid. All of those songs were on here. This is the, in my opinion, definitive Smith's record even though it's not really an album at all. It's just a bunch of sessions and singles thrown together haphazardly. But God, I love it. I love every second of it. And I would I would not trade this one for any other album in their entire discography. Tell me I'm wrong and I'll punch you in the face. My 
punch me in the face? <laughs> no, uh, you can you can punch me in the face. I, I I'll disagree with you on one thing. I don't. Is it the arrangement of the songs on Louder Than Bomb that you object to? Because there's so much good stuff on it, and I know it can be a little shambolic and a bit of a mess when you go from Ask into uh, Golden Lights. Of Golden Lights. Uh, by the way, Johnny Marr. Uh, it was one of the reasons that he said, I think I'm done. Right. Morrissey insisted on that horrible yes. song. Yep. But, you know, I, I'll, I'll say this. I like the twinkle version of it better. <laughs> but uh, but the weird thing is that I, I want anybody who's listening to this, who's making a film sometime soon, a dramatic film, to take my advice and realize that How Soon Is Now is a great song, but I don't listen to it very much. But flip it over or listen to Louder Than Bombs to the B-side because there is no kind of moodier, more evocative um, uh, and, and, and poorly titled, by the way, uh, instrumental than Oscillate Wildly. which is a, I really, really love for some reason, despite the fact that whoever uh, recorded the drums on that should be executed or <laughs> because, I mean, it has that big 80s sound where you hit the snare and it just reverberates for 14 seconds. R.I.P. Stephen Street, alas. You know, it is. It actually is Stephen Street. Um, but it also, the Hatful of Hollow, you know, because you're right about this, because uh, also on Ladder Than Bombs, the Peel Session version of uh, This Night Is Open My Eyes is one of my favorite uh, Smith songs. I can do without Unlovable, I can do without Asleep. I actually do like Rubber Ring, but you know, I, I think that it's a kind of a mess of a record because I also hate Sweet and Tender Hooligan because it has that same London guitar sound, which I can't stand, and there are two songs away from each other on the record. Right. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's great. But I mean, you see, that, that, that's, why, that's why Louder Than Bombs is less successful. But the fact of the matter is that Hatfall Hollow came out in 1984. They didn't have the sprawl that they yeah. could, you know, all that stuff to collect. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, Louder Than Bombs for the U.S. market, so there were songs that there were not available there. You know, all that crap they have to worry about. But on Hatful of Hollow, it was just BBC Sessions from 1983, the 1984 singles, plus I think they, they threw in Hand and Glove, the single mix of Hand and Glove, because I think Morris, he said, like, I will continue to inflict this upon people as long as I have to <laughs> in order to punish them for not making it a hit, which I love. I, just, I love Morrissey. He's, 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 such, he's such a little bitch. It's just, I love so much about him. But, yeah, but it's no, so focused, it's a focused record. It is. I mean, the, the thing is that the BBC sessions is that, that that was something that I didn't quite. I remember buying the vinyl version of the Smith's Peel session. And that was another one of those things I was talking about before is, as the importance of the band to me, it, you know, outside of its own music is how it navigated me through this this world of other bands that I otherwise wouldn't have known of. And it was actually what introduced me to John Peel. And, you know, if you're British, you know that John Peel's Fest of 50, that's, you know, this sort of Christmas institution. Um, you knew of Marky e. Smith and the fall from John Peel, who is absolutely obsessed. 
Uh, he was obsessed with the television personalities. I got into the television personalities uh, uh, from him. But there was something amazing about it that all of those recordings um, are better than anything ever done in the studio. I don't know if that uh, is, you know, John Peel, rest in peace, if that was his influence, how he was mixing those, uh, those sessions. But for instance, there is an Orange Juice song, the great Edwin Collins band, Orange Juice, the Scottish band. Uh, well, every, everyone knows Orange Juice. Who listens to this podcast? Everyone knows that. I hope if they're listening to this, they know Orange Juice and they realize that Rip It Up <laughs> song, but the better single is Falling and Laughing. And the, it's the Peel set. I can't, I couldn't find the the Peel session version of that for, for ages. And I can't listen to the other one. And I don't know what it is about those recordings. And it's the Smith's version of uh, all of those songs that are Peel sessions. The other version of that, uh, by by the way, is uh, what's it called? Uh, I can't listen to uh, the the studio version of uh, Carl's and Cards and Girls by Prefab Sprout, <laughs> which is a really overproduced mess. But the Peel session is like just this raw four guys in in uh, like I guess it was Made Avail at in, in in London where they recorded all that stuff. But I mean the Smiths versions of that, and that is one of the reasons why I love Hatfield Hollow. It's just that these BBC versions of things just yeah. end up sound, sounding better. To me, the quintessential example of what matters, why these Peel sessions, why these BBC sessions are worth it, why you got to get Hatful of Hollow. It's not just a sort of an add-on or an extraneous Smiths album. There's one song. It was a B-side original. I think it was the B-side of What Difference Does It Make? The name of the song is called Back to the Old House. On the uh, original studio recorded version, it sounds, frankly, a bit like lounge music. It's just sort of like a sort of a slow lope. It's like ah ba 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 ba. You know, there's a there's a lazy drum beat in the background. It sounds you know, crap, frankly. And then on the Peel session version, Johnny Marr alone with acoustic guitars that are reverbed into the polar void. It sounds like the most haunting and absolute transfixing piece. Of of really you know emotional pain you know Morrissey singing I I don't want to go back to the old house there's too many bad memories suddenly you get what the point of the lyric was what the point of the music was and it only came out when they recorded it you know without all the studio you know capabilities and the overdubbing gugas that they were able to bring to it they stripped it down back to the old house is it personifies the greatness of Hatful of Hollow. It personifies the greatness of the Smiths as a live band. It personifies why these guys are more than just the normal like album act that you might think they are. I would love to go back to the old house, but I never will. I mean, it's it, it's fantastically written, and it's one of the important things. While we're um, heaping praise on on the Smiths and and doing a, a sort of hour and a half Morrissey's Mar Rourke to the lesser extent uh, Mike Joyce <laughs> hagiography, <laughs> is that the, the interesting thing about writing is that you notice when somebody writing a short film 
and writing a feature film are different things. Right? Some people can do, you know, make a music video, but they can't. They try to transition. There's people like Spike Jones that can make, you know, fantastic Nathan Hornblower Beastie Boys videos and then actually go on to win Academy Awards. Uh, writing in different forms is, is, a, is, is very, very difficult. Morrissey, who is a tremendous songwriter because he's constrained by these couplets, right? But as a writer, he's absolutely terrible. And that was something that disappointed me. And that was my first kind of great disappointment was when I read his autobiography in 2002, yes. which is, I mean, the thing about Morrissey as a person, he's notoriously difficult. Mm -hmm. Record labels, you know, tell him to piss off all the time. Uh, he never stays with one for very long. I mean, even in the early days when he's writing songs about Jeff Travis, frankly, Mr. Shankly, uh, when, when he was running Rough Trade, is that he apparently demanded when his novel came out, I'm sorry, his novel, his, his, his memoir came out, that it, that it be a Penguin classic. Yes, <laughs> and, it, and it was, and it, it has was. that photo. And the other thing that he demanded is that you basically get to see famous writers with their makeup off as they get more famous, because as they become more famous, they demand less editing because they start be believing all their own press clippings. And the, the, the book, the, there's some interesting stuff, in it, a lot of interesting stuff in it, but it's an unwieldy mess and so overwritten that, you know, it's like Leon Weaseltier type purple prose. <laughs> very, very timely reference there, yeah. Michael. Well, yeah, I don't know if he's Weaseltiering in all the other ways, but I mean, as I said to a friend the other day, is that like, it's like Weaseltier's prose. It's so purple that it's aubergine. It's like a... It is like a dark purple. It is unbelievably uh, terrible and, and, and overwritten and in desperate need of a red pen. And then, of course, um, he says, well, I'm going to release uh, a, a novel called List of the Lost, which I may have managed to sort of eight pages of. And <laughs> to, to, to borrow a uh, sentence from Martin Amos talking about Kingsley Amos when he read uh, uh, Money, in which Martin allowed himself in a postmodern way as a character, I sent the book windmilling across the room, as Martin described what Kingsley did. He first, when he said Martin Amos as a character, windmilling across the room, I couldn't get 10 pages into it. And I remember the Telegraph had a, uh, had a review of, uh, of List of the Lost and, um, and had a kind of companion column down the, down the, kind of, down the gutter, uh, which is uh, List of the Lost, the 10 worst lines and this is from a guy. Didn't it win? The, didn't it win the award for one of the worst sex scenes ever? Well, it's funny. That's I mentioned Evelyn Waugh before. That was a prize started by Aubrey Waugh, his son, which was you know the Bad Sex Award, the Bad right. Writing Award for Literary Review. And I don't know if he, I don't know if he won it, but he probably was in pretty tight competition. It was totally. I remember reading the excerpt. It was just I can't even. I, can't, I won't cite it because I won't. I won't inflict it on your ears. But it was <laughs> god awful. I will link it on our show notes. But my lord, Morrissey. <laughs> He, it, he writes about sex the way a Martian writes about life under the sea on Earth. It's just amazingly yeah. bad. I mean, Aubrey Waugh was absolutely right about this. It's like, write about sex sparingly and only if you have to. Because it's, it's, it's the most difficult thing to write about. You're never going to do it well, and it's always going to sound horrible. Leave it to Judith Krantz. You know, don't. And when Morrissey does it, it's like, good God. Morrissey is great, great, great. In short form, I mean, you're talking about um, Real Around the Fountain, you know, you can pin him at me like a butterfly, it's fantastic. But I remember hearing, you know, I dreamt about you last night and I fell out of bed twice. 
which is enough. I don't know why it's funny, but it is. But it, it works. It, it works. works perfectly well. But if he is constrained, it's like Twitter going from 140 to 280 characters. Yes. You work at 140 <laughs> characters. Don't go to 280. You become <laughs> boring. Well, that's what Morrissey's like. And it's like, you know, I wanted to put that in there just because fantastic, fantastic writer. It's like, you know, and, and again, I mentioned Philip Larkin earlier because there's a couple of that Larkin-like line in, in Real Around the Fountain is that, you know, Larkin wrote a novel. Nobody's ever read it. It's horrible. I've read it. I've read it. It's just not worth your time. Don't ever even bother picking it up. The woman's name. What is it? Julia or June or something? Yeah. Oh, God. It was just a nightmare. It was a high school nightmare. It's not good. And, like, you know, Morrissey shouldn't be doing that. It doesn't translate well. But like most bands, the great, great mystery of bands, and it's it's the great case for chemistry, which I tend to, as a term, think of as a bit woo-woo-like. It's, you know, the chemistry of a band. But, you know, all four of these guys go their separate ways. And nobody does anything, except for Morrissey, um, but Morrissey has the help of others, um, doesn't really do too much that matches the original work. They can't do it. I mean, the Beatles make sense together as a foursome. You know, I like some McCartney solo stuff. I like All Things Must Pass. Um, you know, but that's, I mean, there's some Lennon stuff, it's okay. But, you know, if you look at the, the, the Smiths, I mean, Viva Hate works as the first solo record because a lot of those songs were written as Smith songs. And you have Vinnie Riley from Derudy Column making it a brilliant record because it's that, that shimmering guitar sound is not Johnny Marr, but it's the same type thing in which right. the guitar sound is so... It's, it, a counter, it, it, it's a very pleasing counterfeit. Exactly. It's a pleasing counter. But, you know, none of these guys could do much on their own. Morrissey couldn't, couldn't write beyond, you know... He's the, not a musician. He's not a musician. He's a lyricist. Yeah. Hey, and by the way, speaking of going from 140 characters to 280 characters, that's a great way of taking us to the Smith's second album, Meet His Murder, which I think is the entire fatal conceit of Meet His Murder, um, I think there are some excellent songs on this album. I think the Headmaster Ritual is one of the greatest songs that the Smiths ever recorded. I cannot get enough of that opening riff. Yes. I think that opening riff is one of the most beautiful things that the Smiths ever did. And I love the lyric, too. I love the lyric even more when a friend of ours, Jane Coaston, who was um, you know, on the podcast recently talking about Nine Inch Nails, you know, pointed out to me that this is, this is, this is Morrissey writing about gym class. You know, he, he's talking about how horribly abusive life is in these private schools, but he just didn't really want to climb the rope in gym class. And so now <laughs> he turns it into a nightmare. Um, I, I guess I think- it, also, it also has a lyric that, that I didn't realize what it was uh, for like 10 years. You never realized, like, I never read lyrics. I just, they just kind of were there and I knew them or I didn't. Right. Because uh, I was never that obsessed with, like, you know, Morrissey speaking to me. He's telling me something about my existence. Um, but I loved the fact to find out many years later that the lyric was bruises bigger than dinner plates. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. 
<laughs> like, that's like, not physically possible. Yeah, but it's one provocative. It works. <laughs> and that that lyric, by the way, I was I had read. That's the one lyric, I guess, that Mar had had gone to Morrissey and said, "You might want to switch the word wording around." It was the. He was going to leave the, the, the sentiment the same, but the words were going to be flipped around. And Morrissey told him, uh, Morrissey kind of went home, slept on it, came back the next day and said, you know what? You got a point. And then didn't change the lyrics at right. all. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, the Headmaster Ritual is, is a great song. Uh, I think Barbarism Begins at Home is probably one of the most underrated songs on this record. It's a seven-minute-long ode to child abuse. Yeah, that sounds fun. But I, I, I guarantee you that somewhere in deaths, in, in hell, there is death's disco. And the full seven minutes of Barbarism Begins at Home – that, by the way, is the greatest Andy Rourke bass line ever. And if I can, if people, you'll find this on YouTube. It used to be uh, something that you would have to go and track down and spend on a uh, money on a bootleg record. But this is a testament to my nerdiness about this. There is a live recording, a soundboard recording from 1985 in Oxford uh, with a version of Barbarism. I've got it. I've got it. Yeah. <laughs> on the record. And, and it ends with just Andy uh, Andy and Mike Joyce playing for like two minutes. It's fantastic. I think, I think I'm going to be putting that one in the show notes. But yes, so there are great songs on this. The last song that I really want to single out is uh, a song that was released as a single, which is a stupid mistake because it could never have succeeded. It's called That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore. Five and a half minutes long sad uh, mopiness uh, but has this uh, again Morrissey it, he's not working in a parody mode this is not a funny song uh, it ends with this refrain which is you know I've you know I've seen this happen in other people's lives and now it's happening in mine I've seen this happen in other people's lives and now it's happening in mine and it just goes on and on and he's howling you, you know, 17 stacked Johnny Marr guitars come in and it is just one of the most beautiful and kind of bizarrely constructed uh, on a formal level songs that the Smiths ever released um, the highlight of Meade's murder But there are other songs on this album that I just think it just represents a sophomore slump. I am not on board with the Smiths doing rockabilly, whether it's Rush Home Ruffians, whether it's um, Shakespeare's Sister, which is the sort of non-album single that was released right after this, or whether it's um, – ah, oh, there's one other one from the record that I can't even remember. Nowhere um, Fast? Yeah, yeah, Nowhere Fast. That's a good one, though, so you're wrong. Yeah, I don't know, man. This is not their style. This is this is this is Johnny Marr trying to think that he's uh, you know Scotty, uh, you know whatever Elvis Presley's guitarist. He's thinking that you know he's doing rockabilly. It just doesn't work. Well, I don't know if I blame Johnny Marr for that so much because remember in 1991, Morrissey's bands with Boz Borf, he's been in a band called the Polecats, became effectively a rockabilly band. You see a fantastic performance which, by the way, Bill Cosby is on the couch uh, yeah. <laughs> during uh, Johnny Carson. Tells you all you need to know. Yeah, I mean, it's a, and Johnny Carson show, and they play uh, Sing Your Life. In, it's not even kind of 
inflected with rockabilly. It's guys in white t-shirts and cuffed pants and pompadours playing as Morrissey's band. And so I, I kind of tend to blame Stephen Patrick on, on this one and, and maybe he influenced Johnny Marr. I don't mind. I, I don't mind it at all. Uh, I think Nowhere Fast is a really good track. It's got that that kind of re- repeating guitar lick through it. The do 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 do. do. I dig that. I'd like to drop my trousers to the queen. Every sensible child will know what this means. The poor and the needy are selfish and greedy. The day came when I felt a natural emotion I'd get such a shock I'd probably jump in the ocean And when a train goes by um, what she said even has a, a little bit of rockabilly to it too, combined with almost a '70s punk aesthetic. It's a it's a song played with speed and intensity that works, as opposed to "Miserable Lie" previous, where I don't think it worked as well. Some great cymbal crashes. We want to say something nice about the drummer every now and then, I suppose. Uh, in 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 what she said, and the headmaster ritual. Uh, I agree with Jeff. Is just one of the. Great Smith songs with perhaps the best Johnny Marr riff. I had read a quote. He said, that riff is what Joni Mitchell would have done if she were an MC5 fan. Uh, That is a (laughs) tremendous riff on a tremendous opener, the Headmaster uh, Ritual. And, you know, for a second straight week, we had uh, uh, Roger Waters and, you know, uh, another brick in the wall and very unhappy with the Headmasters (laughs) and Discipline at School. And this week we have the Headmaster Ritual, which is, talking about spineless swines as teachers, uh, very much in that same vein. Uh, I think um, it, it works for me. I mean, I, again, I actually, I do like the rockabilly taste to me as murder, and outside of the title track, which is um, awful, and uh, um, oh, yeah, yeah, of, we were all agreed, by the way, that "Meat is Murder" is the stupidest song ever written by any band, basically in the history of modern music ever. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. good. I'm, I'm glad that yeah, we can just we can just move on. I just want to make sure question quickly because that's true. <laughs> So bad. Morrissey baws like a sheep and he moves like a cow. Oh, God, it's so awful. <laughs> um, this is Political Beats, we should tell you. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Michael Moynihan is with us this week. At MC Moynihan is uh, him on Twitter. Correspondent, Vice News Tonight on HBO, member of the Fifth Column Podcast. Remember, subscribe, please. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in. Or at nationalreview.com. With our new episodes on Mondays and old episodes available there as well. Listen, enjoy, we hope, and uh, leave a review as well. That All gets... of this has been prelude. Yeah. Thank... All of this has been prelude, frankly, to the album that every person who's a Smiths man has been salivating at, 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 at the gills to get us to... Yes, we know what it is. No, but we're not going to get there first because we first need to cover a non-album single. That would be uh, The Boy with the Thorn in His Side. I don't care about the song itself. I think it's good. But what I really want to talk about is one song, a B-side called Rubber Ring, which is the best B-side the Smiths ever released, a song about the Smiths, a song about every band the Smiths ever listened to, a song about loving music as a kid and knowing what matters the most. Uh, I think this is one of those things that needs to be appreciated more than anything else. But don't forget the songs that made you cry And the songs that saved your life Yes, you're older now and you're a clever swine But they were the only ones who ever stood by you
one they released right up to The Queen Is Dead. The Queen Is Dead, of course, is their greatest album by common consensus, although the band themselves disagree. I will say only this, that I think the first four songs in this album are really not that great, and I'm going to hand it over to the rest of you. Well, I'm actually with you on on that. I mean, Queen Is Dead by critical acclaim is, I mean, I think NME said it's the best album of all time in a survey a couple of years ago. Um, the, the back, and Cemetery Gates is where it, where it shifts um, and, and really, truly becomes great. Those first few songs, as Jeff mentioned, uh, I don't want to say they're take it or leave it, but I don't think they're, they're, they're phenomenal, you know, best ever kind of tracks. I, I like The Queen Is Dead, the, the first track, very muscular bass line and like machine gun drum fills through the song. Uh, I do like it. One of the hardest songs in the, in the Smiths catalog, uh, catalog. But yeah, Cemetery Gates is such a great song. Some somewhere where you know the the playing of Mar and the lyrics of of Morrissey come together in a very good way. Very kinksy, almost from like a something else era kinks track. Uh, cheerful sounding tune, but but morbid as well. There it, it is put in a cemetery. Uh, they're quoting uh, great writers back and forth. Morrissey gets into the issue of plagiarism, which he had been accused of, or at least uh, um, you know he had been. Uh, I don't want to say doing. He's, but, he's guilty of. He's totally guilty yeah. of it. Let's be honest. You must write poems, the words you used to be around. Don't plagiarize or take on loan. But there's always someone somewhere with a big nose who knows and trips you up and laughs when you fall. And, and so that, that's where the album shifts, and, and the rest of it is pretty damn good. Uh, Big Mouth Strikes Again might be the what, second most well-known Smith song, I think. Uh, that the, the portion of Big Mouth Strikes Again, that, that that extended drum break into kind of a mini Mar guitar solo, is so wonderful. And and the song that starts off with you know sweetness, I was only joking when I said I'd like to uh, mash every tooth in your head. Um, there you go. That's the Smiths right there. It, it's a take me as I am kind of song. And um, one of the best known songs from fans. There's a light that never goes out. Maybe the most plainly romantic Smith's song. Uh, passion, pain, pleasure, all included. Andy Rourke called it uh, the indie candle in the wind, which I think there is perhaps some truth, it, uh, truth to. Any song that has double-decker buses and 10-ton trucks, <laughs> right. you know it's truly romantic <laughs> from the Smiths. So uh, Andy Rourke is wrong about that, uh, despite the fact that he plays bass on it, because Candle in the Wind is a war crime of a song, um, and... <laughs> Elton John should spend time in the Hague in a Slobodan Milosevic-like pose <laughs> for doing that to us, and then you know, doing it again, right? It was a couple of versions of that. You yes. know, with, Is this how you want to spend the remaining time, Michael? Yes, I do. <laughs> Goodbye, England's Rose. You should be in the brig. You are the worst. No, I would say that 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 uh, uh, there's a light that never goes out. You're supposed to be kind of heterodox about these things and say, "Oh, it's actually." It is a fantastic song, beginning to end. The lyrics are are incredibly funny too, mm -hmm. um, and affecting in the same way that "Girlfriend in a Coma" is kind of that way too. But um, how do people think this was a depressing song? This is one of the funniest songs the Smiths right. have ever written. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it like you know. 
Where he says, like, you know, I, I, oh, please don't take me home because it's not my home. It's their home. And I'm welcome no more. It's very so funny. Oh, please don't drop me home because it's not my home. It's their home and I'm welcome no more. And if a double-decker boss crashes into I mean, it's, I guess, the cadence of it. You can be like, God, he's really speaking to me about, wait, I don't know what he's speaking about, but it's really beautiful. <laughs> Is it, um, I will say, uh, in another kind of bootleg, better version, um, Some Girls Are Bigger Than Others, which is a very funny song, too, is not something that people kind of linger on on that record, but there is a version of it, which I think was actually officially released as a B-side to some reissue of, I think, Gene. I think it was a Gene single like 15, 15 years ago. And it is a live version of Some Girls Are Bigger Than Others from the last concert. They the last did. concert at Brixton Academy. And yeah. which Morrissey begins it by saying what, to the cheers, he says, you have incredibly good taste. And then goes into a very guitar driven version of it with these really muted drums that it's almost like a really tight hi-hat and a release. And it's so, so unbelievably good. good. And it makes me wish that they had recorded a studio version of that because the studio version is huge and it comes in and it fades out. And the drums are huge and the guitars are huge and it's a muted song. And when, when it's done that way, it's absolutely brilliant. But I don't, I don't think the queen is dead is the best Smith's record. I don't think the song I, uh, the queen is dead is, is very good. I mean, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, I don't think it's very good. And when you're looking at the sort of Smith's canon and the pantheon of great Smith songs, mm-hmm. right. um, I do like the fact that it's take, it starts with take me, take me back to dear old blighty. Um, and then it kind of comes in surprisingly. And that was the first Smith song I really ever listened to. Cause it was the first record that I bought. Right. And I missed them um, when I was very, very young, I guess I was 13 years old and I wasn't allowed to go. Um, there's a girl named Gina Perini. Maybe I'll bleep that out. I think her parents owned a construction company. But Gina <laughs> uh, uh, had tickets to go see uh, the Smiths at Great Woods. And that concert has now been released in the past month as a, uh, as a bonus at Great Woods. And I, was, I had a, the possibility of going to that, but I, I wasn't really into the Smiths yet. And I also had parents that would, probably have objected and thought I was going, you know, to see like, I don't know, three dog night or something. And it's like, no, it's just <laughs> a bunch of people weeping on a, on a, on a hill. Uh, Cause it was an outdoor. Michael, yeah. Michael, 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 I have to ask you this question though. Yeah. Can, we, can we all agree yeah. before we move on to these, these last few singles in strange ways that the Smiths were incredibly ballsy to end their most profound album with all of their great, great statements with an extended fat joke, which is what <laughs> yeah. some girls are bigger than others is. Uh, today we would call that fat shaming. Yes. Uh, <laughs> fat shaming if we don't identify a target, if it's just <laughs> fat people in general, 
Because <laughs> uh, I think it's a general statement of Morrissey objecting to obesity. But I think it was primarily from health concerns and worries about type 2 diabetes. I don't know. Uh, all right, all right. I don't want to rush through these last few singles, but but after The Queen is Dead is released, there's a long kind of a felt. The, the, the whole genesis of the album was very troubled. They actually had finished it in early 1985. It took almost a year for it to be fully released. Um, after they released it, Andy Rourke was briefly kicked out of the band. Famously, uh, Morrissey uh, left a uh, note on his windshield saying, Andy Rourke, you have left the Smiths. Good luck. Um, uh, <laughs> he denies this. but I'm Well, thinking. by the way, he denies this, and Andy told me uh, that he, has, he, he still has the note. He still has the note. Okay, I'm that could have been, that been left by anybody. Right? I mean, who yeah. says Morrissey did that? Wait, I just love the way he said goodbye <laughs> and good luck. That's so Morrissey. Of course that's Morrissey. Yeah. Anyways, but, you know, it was you know, it was for a drug addiction thing, which Rourke eventually kicked. They brought in Craig Gannon, who was of Aztec camera, sort of beef up the sound. And then when Rourke came back, because they realized they needed that bass, you know, they had a kind of a five-man ensemble for a while. Um, the, 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 out, the song in which this most clearly shows up is the first of these four non-album singles that come out after The Queen is Dead. It's called Panic. Uh, if you don't know The Smiths, if you don't know Panic, man, I pity you. <laughs> this is a song about that Morrissey wrote about listening to you know, news breaking about the Chernobyl nuclear meltdown in Ukraine. Um, you know, and the, the BBC Radio One announcer saying, like, yes, you know, nuclear clouds spreading into Eastern Europe, you know, a great tragedy. There may be hundreds and thousands dead. You know, who knows what the ramifications. Hey, now coming up, Wham's next big hit, I'm Your Man. And then it goes into George Michael singing, I'm Your Man. And he was like, what, 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 what is going on here? Why are you telling me that, that, that thousands could die and now you're playing me a stupid pop song? And that's why Panic on the Streets of London, at the end, he says, hang the DJ. And he gets a children's chorus to sing, hang the DJ, hang the DJ. And it sounds like the most wonderfully triumphant moment of their entire career. And he's asking them to lynch people. A classic Morrissey reversal. This is one of the two greatest not-album Smith singles. And of all these four, it's Panic. It's uh, Ask, Sheila, Take a Bow, Shoplifters of the World Unite. This is the one that really stands out as just a magnificent achievement. And I think one of the last times that the Smiths really kind of had that cultural moment where they're going to stand out from everything else that fades away. You know, ironically, 10, 10 plus years ago, when I'm, I did a uh, post-punk and Britpop night uh, as a DJ, it was the song that I would always play and people liked the most. Uh, because <laughs> as, as the heads kind of crane towards you and, and, and hang the DJ comes on, you kind of beat a hasty retreat and go outside and have a cigarette or something. Yes. It, it is a terrific, uh, uh, terrific song. Yeah, and I think one of the best... Um, uh, non-album singles and also I always I always took it as something because um, another thing is there's probably a kind of subtext there of 
Morrissey constantly getting in trouble for saying how much he hated kind of club music. Right. Hated- right. They, they, they turned it into a racist thing, which I did not get at all, but I yeah, wasn't there. And of, course, and of course, he liked to fan the flames of that because, you know, it, it's, it's funny that you don't. I mentioned this the other day uh, after I saw the Louis C.K.'s uh, new movie. I don't remember the context, but I mentioned the Morrissey song Speedway which is the last song on Vauxhall and I, absolutely brilliant song. And, and he loved indulging these rumors and playing with them and being at Finsbury Park and having the, the big, you know, the Union Jack right at the time when the BNP. And the that, Finsbury uh, Park Mosque and all of that. Very, yeah, you know, yeah. and, 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 you know, it was before that, you know, before that was a thing, the Finsbury Park Mosque. I mean, it was a thing, but it wasn't, you know, a hotbed of radicalism quite yet. But when he's at Finsbury Park at, at Madstock, at a festival put on by Madness, and he has the big, um, you know, has the Union Jack over his head and National Front Disco, that song and that record. Um, there's a line, which I think is, is really perfectly Morrissey, I, on Speedway, when he's, all of these rumors keeping me grounded, I never said they were completely unfounded. And then in the chorus, he's like, all these lies, twisted lies, well, they weren't lies. And, it's, and people <laughs> took that, uh, and I think rightfully so, of him playing with everybody about all these, all these rumors and all these things about him being racist, especially in his hatred of you know, club music, and then later saying he hated hip hop, and, 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 uh, and panic became this thing of like, well, he, he hates these types of things, and he hates, he hates sort of electronic music, and yeah. You know, very early signs of the kind of PC mob that can take this and turn it into man is a foaming at the mouth racist. Morrissey, <laughs> secret racist. Next. Yeah, I mean, and, all those fans are. So. so, so Scott, do you have any thoughts on these four songs? Yep. Uh, I mean, Panic, Panic. Axe, uh, Shoplifters, Sheila. Panic's great, and that story reminds me of the, <laughs> that scene in Private Parts, the Howard Stern movie, where he has to interrupt the uh, the story of his mom in a car crash and going through the windshield by giving the time and temp. That, that sort of weird juxtaposition. But yeah, Chernobyl, and here's Wham. Um, clearly <laughs> uh, nicked a bit from T-Rex, right? Uh, part of Panic, Metal Guru. Yeah, uh, right. That song, but it still works fantastically. The children's choir or children's chorus kills me in the outro uh, of Panic. Great soon. The other one I wanted to point out is actually the, and you correct me because um, again, all these things going through my head in terms of where things are. It's the B side of Shoplifters of the World Unite. Half a person. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. That right there, I think is one of the finest songs that Mar and Morrissey have has uh, have written. You're and, not alone. A lot of yeah. Smiths fans would agree with you. And Marr uh, tells the story of writing it literally face to face with Morrissey and, and putting uh, his music together w- with the lyrics. Um, you know, call me morbid, call me pale. I've spent six years on your trail. Sixteen clumsy and shy. That's the story of my life. Sixteen clumsy and shy. I went to London and died. I put myself in a I like it here, can I stay? And do you have a vacancy for a back scrubber? There's a lot of great uh, lyrics in but that then, song. But then Morrissey does that thing where he just turns into a joke. He said, I checked as a, in as a young man to the YWCA. Right. That's the Young Women's Christian Association. <laughs> I said, I like it here. Can I stay? I'd like to get a job as a 
as a back scrubber. Oh, God. That's the thing. It's like when you think it's going to be the most mopey, depressing Morrissey thing. It's not. And a lyric, he just turns it into like a self-parody. And this is I, this is the, the point that Michael has been on about since the beginning of the show, and that I have been too, is that, you know, Morris, yeah, there's the depressive lyrics, but man, this guy has just the most magnificently acute sense of irony and self-parody. And that comes up. That comes up brilliantly, yeah. I think, in their final album. Uh, this is the album, The Smiths Imploded. They had a, a, the last album that was supposed to take them to greatness, and then they broke up amidst financial and intraband disputes and all sorts of problems. And the name of that album is Strange Ways Here We Come. Now, here's the thing. Most fans will say and critics that The uh, Queen is Dead is the best Smiths album. Morrissey and Marr insist the best album they ever released is Strange Ways Here We Come from 1987. And I don't agree, but I can almost get it. The reason I almost get it is based on entirely two songs. The first one is Girlfriend in a Coma, which I sort of parodied earlier at the beginning of this show. Mm -hmm. This is this goes back to what Michael was talking about, you know, the Phil Spector ethos. This was the single from the album, um, you know, two minutes and 30 seconds. Beyond that, you're wasting my time. Girlfriend in a Coma is, I think, two minutes and one second long. It does not waste a single moment. Fractionally, there is nothing on that record that makes you think, well, this shouldn't be here. But the other one that I love off of Strange Ways, I think the best song on Strange Ways and one of the five best songs that the Smiths ever did, one of their greatest achievements is the exact opposite. It's a long, sprawling mess of a song called Death of a Disco Dancer. This is the best lyric on a political level, the best political lyric that Morrissey ever wrote for the Smiths, and I would argue ever wrote even in his solo career. If you combine them both, this was it. This is a song about you know a death of a disco dancer. Discos in, in Britain mean clubs. It means you know sort of that club scene. It's the gay scene. It's a minority scene. He doesn't really explain what happens. He just says, uh, you know, and, and, and if you think peace is a common goal, well, then that just goes to show how little you really know. He hints that, you know, this this guy was killed maybe because he was gay mm -hmm. or maybe because he was black. He doesn't get into it. He leaves it vague. It's such a brilliantly well-observed and yet minimalist lyric. And then he ends with the greatest line that he ever wrote on any political thing ever, which is he says, love, peace, and harmony, love, peace, and harmony. Very nice, very nice, very nice, but maybe in the next world, maybe in the next world, and you have to hear it delivered to understand just how dismissive and brutal it sounds, and then it just, the song descends into this cacophony of noise. It's a six-minute long song. I think it's one of the longest things they ever did. Death of a Disco Dancer, you'll never find it on a compilation album. It's never been collected on any of their greatest hits. It's one of the five greatest songs the Smiths ever recorded. Please, I beg you, go hear it.
Yeah, I, I agree on all that. Uh, and, you know, the, I think the best uh, political lyrics actually, you know, I think people misunderstand it greatly is uh, on the next record is, I think it was written at the time with Strange Ways, which is Bengalian platform. Viva Hate, yeah. Right. People, mis I think, misunderstand it as a xenophobic song, but it's actually, um, you know, from the perspective of a Bengali trying to, you know, um, integrate into British society. I, you know, Death of a Disco is fantastic. There's only one song on this record that I think I could never hear again and I would be happy, and that's Death at One's Elbow. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. garbage garbage but i mean unhappy birthday is great uh, i i won't share you is fantastic i mean and those are the songs that people don't pay much attention to because um that's it's that back half of the record because it starts so strong with a rush and a push and uh i don't i'm not a huge fan of this i started something i couldn't finish but into death of a disco dancer girlfriend in a coma and one of the best pop songs straight you know pure uncut pop songs that this mess ever recorded is uh, Stop Me If You Think You've Heard This One Before, mm -hmm. which also has, if you haven't seen it, uh, make sure after listening to this sprawling tribute to the Smiths that you watch the video, which is a bunch <laughs> of Morrissey impersonators and Morrissey riding bicycles around South Africa. <laughs> uh, and it's great. It, it's, it, there's really nothing more to it. And there's all these people, men and women, with the big quiff uh, riding bikes around Salford. But I think it's a... I think it's an in incredibly poorly produced record. I, I would love to, to, to get back to those original tracks and, and, and remix it and reproduce it because it does have that kind of later 80s, big, fat sound that doesn't serve the Smiths well. But I think it's, if not their best record, it's, it's, I think it's one or two. I, don't, I have a hard time ranking it. I mean, I know that Rolling Stone, as they tend to do, as you know, it went from you know a print magazine to you know <laughs> large. It's not a listicle; just lists of a you know the hundred best SNL sketches, and they have like the seventy-five best Smith songs. I have no sense in how to rank the records or songs, um, but I think that if I had to, I like the. I mean, Meet Is Murder. I think is really really good, with the exception of Meet Is Murder and and and. Uh, strange ways with the exception of death at one's elbow which is not um a very good song <laughs> scott I, I like strange ways quite a bit and i completely understand uh you know mar and, and morrissey saying it's their it's the favorite thing they did uh, there are some new creative touches there's some i don't want to say experimentations but you know different avenues that could have been explored if they would have stuck around as a band for a, a, a few more years. I think, you know, Mar said he, he could have done at least one more. He thought maybe they had one more in, in them for sure if things would have worked out differently. I am totally with Jeff on a Death of a Disco Dancer being just a tremendous song, best one on the album, um, and, and, and it may have hinted at things that would have would have come uh, in in the next album. That that's a great great song. Uh, Unhappy birthday, which which uh, Michael mentioned, is is also a great song. Um, I think Mar was is a is a pretty big fan of Neil Young, and some of the acoustic guitar on Unhappy Birthday uh, reminds me of some Neil Young stuff from from earlier. Um, wish you a happy I mean, birthday I mean, because you're evil and alive. Song on the entire yeah. discography. It, it's it's wow. a really good song. Um, and I won't share you closes things up. Uh, auto harp uh, being played is that generally? Are we generally thinking that that's Morrissey talking to Mar? Because you know by that point, yeah, Mar was very frustrated with being in the band. That way. And, yeah, yeah, uh, you know because Mar was playing with some other people, and and Morrissey was frustrated by that. Mar um, wanted to do a few different things than Morrissey did on 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 um, 
the, the Smiths album. So I, I think it's generally how I hear it. I won't share you. I won't share you with the drive and ambition, the zeal I feel. This is my time. The notes I wrote as she read, she said, Has the Perrier gone straight to my head? Or is life sick and cruel instead? Yes. No, 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 no. Yeah, I, I, I completely understand Strange Ways being thought of by the band members, or at least two of them, as being uh, the best the best thing they did. So now we got to do the final finale of the show where we ask each of our members, and we're going to do this in order. Michael, you go first, then Scott, and then I will, to name their two key albums and five key songs from the Smiths. Michael, we turn it over to you. Rock on. Did you warn me about this in the email? Damn, I would have prepared something. The I did. You I don't read your emails when it comes in. I'm like, oh, God, like, this is another email from him. Dude, no. I know. This is really tough for me. I went through like 16 configurations. Go. Yeah, I don't. I mean, look, I, I as I actually just said, um, I find it hard to actually to 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 rank these things. I'm going to I'm going to go um, two key albums. That's the easy part. The two key albums, I think, are, I mean, not only, and this is kind of like Time's Man of the Year. It doesn't mean the best man of the year. Correct. That's why, you know, Hitler gets it. Um, <laughs> it's just the key album. I think in Strange Ways uh, and, and uh, Queen is Dead. I mean, I think that the end of that career is a great cap to a band that pissed everybody off so much when they got together without Johnny Marr at Wolverhampton and played that played that show with Craig Gannon was the first right. solo show. And it was like, I need more of this because they were getting into this place. It's almost as if the Beatles breaking up around revolver. I, I don't, uh, it's actually, you know, it's the Beatles breaking up around Sergeant Pepper because revolver, the previous record, you know, better than Sergeant Pepper. And, yes, and right. I, I think Queen is dead is, is probably on balance. Something I'd prefer to listen to in strange ways. But as far as um, the five key songs, Oh God, that's so horrible. I know, I know. You, you, so no, no so take backs. Just gotta lay them out now, and you'll be judged okay. on them forever. <laughs> okay, uh, the, the, I'll be judged on them forever. I know. Uh, I would say um, I would start with uh, this charming man, which is po possibly the best pop hook uh, written in the 1980s, and compounded by the fact that it is incredibly difficult to play, which uh, is usually not indicative of something that's better. It's usually worse when you get like the Rush kind of fish sort of thing of noodling. It is like a pop hook noodling, which is one of the great, great songs uh, uh, of the 80s and the best, probably one of the best songs they have ever recorded. I would say there is a light. I'm going to be very, very standard on this. 
it is a enormous swelling kind of crescendo that is works as we talked about earlier on multiple levels it's like a simpsons episode kids can like it and adults can like it too it's like funny and and the people who think it's depressing can think it's depressing um i would probably say headmaster's ritual which i don't know why but that's one of those songs that um i have no it has no resonance with me because i never went to a british boarding school and was never abused by somebody in a military uniform. And, you know, Bell and Sebastian has a very similar song of, you know, of uh, um, uh, on that first record, it's like, I can't remember what it is, but it's, it's the same, it's essentially the same song. Uh, that would be the, the third one. Um, God, uh, I, I really like Still Ill, Still. I, cause, and it's because it's an early Smith song that doesn't feel like other Smith songs to me because it's, it's just, a, it's a very frenetic song unlike the sort of jangle pop that one gets and everything else um and you know can i can i say make it count michael no i'm going to say girlfriend in a coma and the reason i was good job you made it count because i made it count it's really i'd say it because it's easy but but primarily (laughs) to my previous uh uh phil specter theory of uh of uh two two minute pop songs two minutes and three seconds uh girlfriend in a coma and it is uh, funny, brilliant, and it basically is the perfect distillation of Morrissey as a lyricist. And it's not the best Smith song for the other three, but it's a perfectly sarcastic, wonderful Morrissey song. All right. Scott. That would be me. Uh, all right. So uh, two albums, I think Strange Ways, and I'm going back and forth an awful lot about the second one, but if no one's going to go bat, go to bat, Hardcore. I, I guess I will for for Meat is Murder. Uh, make that my second album. Uh, I really enjoy some of the flourishes, the uh, the guitar uh, from from Mar on, on Meat is Murder. Some really good tracks that, again, most most rankings that you see around there, that's 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 fourth or fifth on the list. But you know what? Give it a try. It's really good. Uh, the five songs: Panic, the single, um, which we talked about just a little bit ago. Headmaster Ritual from Mita's Murder. Again, just that opening riff from Johnny Marr. So, so good. Uh, what Difference Does It Make? My favorite song off the first Smiths album. Uh, Death of a Disco Dancer from, from uh, Strange Ways. And um, Half a Person, a B-side from Shoplifters of the World Unite. A really great pairing of Marr's music and Morrissey's lyrics. So those are my five. Jeff. Okay, yeah, well, I will start, and you knew this is coming. Uh, my first and most important uh, Smith's album recommendation is Hatful of Hollow. Ignore the fact that it's a nominal compilation. Ignore the fact that half of the songs that are from the Smith's original debut album were early BBC recordings. It's amazing. The singles that are compiled there are also amazing. It is your best drop-for-drop value for the money on any Smith's album ever released. The second one is... It's got to be The Queen is Dead, even though I think the first four songs on The Queen is Dead aren't that great. Everything that comes subsequent to it, including Vicar in a Tutu, which we didn't talk about, which is a dumb rockabilly song, but it's dumb rockabilly that's done in a very melodically entertaining way. Everything is great. It ends with a fat joke, which I immensely respect Morrissey for having the guts to do. Those are the two ones you need. Five songs, Reel Around the Fountain first one you can get it either on the smith's debut or you can get it in the original troy tate sessions version you can find either of them on youtube headmaster ritual i agree with scott that is uh, the best song on me is murder 
one of the best songs the Smiths ever did. Radiohead did a pretty mean cover of it as well. Um, Rubber Ring. If you have to choose a Smiths B-side, they have so many great ones. Rubber Ring is the best for me simply because it actually talks about what it means to be a fan of B-sides. It's very meta. It's a meta commentary on what the music fans, music lovers really truly appreciated about hunting down the odds and ends about bands that they truly loved and, and, and that meant something to them. And it's all on that one song. He says, don't forget the songs that made you cry and you know, the songs that saved your life. You're a clever swine now, but remember, those were the only ones that were there for you in the end. Uh, uh, the last two, Cemetery Gates. Cemetery Gates is, frankly, the single best song the Smiths mm. ever did. Mm. Number one out of five. The best thing they ever did, period. The best song Scott talked about why it's such a good song, so I didn't feel the need to repeat it, but it is the single greatest achievement of the entire Smiths canon, uh, and it almost single-handedly justifies The Queen is Dead. And then the last one is Death of a Disco Dancer. You've already heard me talk about why that song is so impressive to me. Uh, it's the highlight on Strange Ways. But uh, again, this is a band that they don't have a really sprawling discography. You can get most of it. You can get most of it pretty cheap. Uh, it's worth investing in the entire range because you will find out that, that some of your favorite songs aren't the ones that all three of us, any of us, have mentioned or even discussed in the span of two hours. They're going to be worth it. This band was worth it. They're always going to be worth it. I can't recommend strongly enough to anyone listening, please explore the Smiths. And there we go. The Political Beats look at the Smiths, thanks to our guest, Michael Moynihan. He picked the band. You can find him on Vice News Tonight, where he's a correspondent, HBO, member of the Fifth Column podcast. And look for him on Twitter, at MC Moynihan. Michael, thank you so much for your time and sharing your love and uh, insight into the Smiths. Thank you guys so much for having me. And I want to thank you for allowing me to do the nerdiest thing I've done in a long time. Which is, <laughs> That's uh, the entire point of this right. show. No, it's amazing. It's amazing. This, this is the nerdiest thing I have done since I was like eight years old. So thank you for that. You, this, you, you have no idea, Michael. The fan response is going to be immense from this. There are so many people out there who have just been waiting yes waiting to hear someone nerd out about the Smiths. And I it's, know because they've talked to me. That's privately. right. It is no well, joke. I think, just heard it. So. Yeah, I think of all the requests we've, we've received, you know, via Twitter, I think the Smiths probably has been the most requested act that we do on the show. So, you know, mission accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> all all right. right. Thank you, Michael. Uh, and Jeff Blair, follow him at Esoteric CD. A wonderful show as always, friend. Yes, I am so pleased. And we'll see you all next week. Don't forget to subscribe to our feed. New episodes Mondays, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right there at nationalreview.com. This has been a presentation of National Review. It's Political Beats.